0: Section 11 of The History of England from the Accession of James the Second. Volume 3, Chapter 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second. Volume 3, Chapter 14 by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Section 11 the style of the liturgy, however, did not satisfy the doctors of the Jerusalem chamber. They voted the collects too short and too dry, and Patrick was entrusted with the duty of expanding and ornamenting them. In one respect, at least, the choice seems to have been unexceptionable, for, if we judge by the way in which Patrick paraphrased the most sublime Hebrew poetry, we shall probably be of opinion that, Whether he was or was not qualified to make the collects better, no man that ever lived was more competent to make them longer. It mattered little, however, whether the recommendations of the Commission were good or bad. They were all doomed before they were known. The writs summoning the convocation of the province of Canterbury had been issued, and the clergy were everywhere in a state of violent excitement. They had just taken the oaths and were smarting from the earnest reproofs of non-jurors from the insolent taunts of whigs and often undoubtedly from the stings of remorse the announcement that a convocation was to sit for the purpose of deliberating on a plan of comprehension roused all the strongest passions of the priest who had just complied with the law and was ill satisfied or half satisfied with himself for complying He had an opportunity of contributing to defeat a favourite scheme of that government which had exacted from him, under severe penalties, a submission not easily to be reconciled to his conscience or his pride. He had an opportunity of signalising his zeal for that church whose characteristic doctrines he had been accused of deserting for lucre. She was now, he conceived, threatened by a danger as great as that of the preceding year the Latitudinarians of 1689, were not less eager to humble and to ruin her than the Jesuits of 1688. The Toleration Act had done for the dissenters quite as much as was compatible with her dignity and security, and nothing more ought to be conceded, not the hem of one of her vestments, not an epithet from the beginning to the end of her liturgy. All the reproaches which had been thrown on the ecclesiastical commission of James were transferred to the ecclesiastical commission of William. The two commissions, indeed, had nothing but the name in common, but the name was associated with illegality and oppression, with the violation of dwellings and the confiscation of freeholds, and was therefore assiduously sounded with no small effect by the tongues of the spiteful in the ears of the ignorant the king, too, it was said, was not sound. He conformed, indeed, to the established worship, but his was a local and occasional conformity. For some ceremonies to which high churchmen were attached, he had a distaste which he was at no pains to conceal. One of his first acts had been to give orders that in his private chapel the service should be said instead of being sung, and this arrangement, though warranted by the rubric, caused much murmuring. It was known that he was so profane as to sneer at a practice which had been sanctioned by high ecclesiastical authority, the practice of touching for the scrofula. This ceremony had come down almost unaltered from the darkest of the Dark Ages to the time of Newton and Locke, The stewards frequently dispensed the healing influences in the banqueting-house. The days on which this miracle was to be wrought were fixed at sittings of the Privy Council, and were solemnly notified by the clergy in all the parish churches of the realm. When the appointed time came, several divines in full canonicals stood round the canopy of state. The surgeon of the royal household introduced the sick, A passage from the sixteenth chapter of the Gospel of St. Mark was read. When the words, They shall lay their hands on the sick, and they shall recover, had been pronounced, there was a pause, and one of the sick was brought up to the king. His Majesty stroked the ulcers and swellings, and hung around the patient's neck a white ribbon, to which was fastened a gold coin. The other sufferers were then led up in succession, and, as each was touched, the chaplain repeated the incantation, They shall lay their hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Then came the epistle, prayers, antiphonies, and a benediction. The service may still be found in the prayer-books of the Reign of Anne. Indeed, it was not till some time after the accession of George I that the University of Oxford ceased to reprint the Office of Healing together with the liturgy theologians of eminent learning ability and virtue gave the sanction of their authority to this mummery and what is stranger still medical men of high note believed or affected to believe in the balsamic virtues of the royal hand we must suppose that every surgeon who attended charles the second was a man of high repute for skill and more than one of the surgeons who attended Charles the Second has left us a solemn profession of faith in the King's miraculous power. One of them is not ashamed to tell us that the gift was communicated by the unction administered at the coronation, that the cures were so numerous and sometimes so rapid that they could not be attributed to any natural cause, that the failures were to be ascribed to want of faith on the part of the patients, that Charles once handled a scrofulous Quaker, and made him a healthy man and a sound churchman in a moment, that if those who had been healed lost or sold the piece of gold which had been hung around their necks, the ulcers broke forth again, and could be removed only by a second touch and a second talisman. We cannot wonder that when men of science gravely repeated such nonsense, the vulgar should believe it. Still less can we wonder that wretches tortured by a disease, over which the natural remedies had no power, should eagerly drink in tales of preternatural cures, for nothing is so credulous as misery. The crowds which repaired to the palace on the days of healing were immense. Charles the Second, in the course of his reign, touched near a hundred thousand persons. The number seems to have increased or diminished as the king's popularity rose or fell, During that Tory reaction which followed the dissolution of the Oxford Parliament, the press to get near him was terrific. In 1682 he performed the rite 8,500 times. In 1684 the throng was such that six or seven of the sick were trampled to death. James, in one of his progresses, touched 800 persons in the choir of the Cathedral of Chester, The expense of the ceremony was little less than ten thousand pounds a year, and would have been much greater but for the vigilance of the royal surgeons, whose business it was to examine the applicants, and to distinguish those who came for the cure from those who came for the gold. William had too much sense to be duped, and too much honesty to bear a part in what he knew to be an imposture. "'It is a silly superstition,' he exclaimed, when he heard that, at the close of Lent, his palace was besieged by a crowd of the sick. "'Give the poor creatures some money, and send them away.' On one single occasion he was importuned into laying his hand on a patient. "'God give you better health,' he said, "'and more sense." the parents of scrofulous children cried out against his cruelty bigots lifted up their hands and eyes in horror at his impiety jacobites sarcastically praised him for not presuming to arrogate to himself a power which belonged only to legitimate sovereigns and even some whigs thought that he acted unwisely in treating with such marked contempt a superstition which had a strong hold on the vulgar mind but william was not to be moved and was accordingly set down by many high churchmen as either an infidel or a puritan the chief cause however which at this time made even the most moderate plan of comprehension hateful to the priesthood still remains to be mentioned what burnet had foreseen and foretold had come to pass there was, throughout the clerical profession, a strong disposition to retaliate on the Presbyterians of England the wrongs of the Episcopalians of Scotland. It could not be denied that even the highest churchmen had, in the summer of 1688, generally declared themselves willing to give up many things for the sake of union. But it was said, and not without plausibility, that what was passing on the other side of the border proved union, on any reasonable terms, to be impossible. With what face, it was asked, can those who will make no concession to us where we are weak blame us for refusing to make any concession to them where we are strong? We cannot judge correctly of the principles and feelings of a sect from the professions which it makes in a time of feebleness and suffering. If we would know what the Puritan spirit really is, we must observe the Puritan when he is dominant. He was dominant here in the last generation, and his little finger was thicker than the loins of the prelates. He drove hundreds of quiet students from their cloisters, and thousands of respectable divines from their parsonages, for the crime of refusing to sign his covenant. No tenderness was shown to learning, to genius, or to sanctity such men as Hall and Sanderson, Chillingworth and Hammond, were not only plundered, but flung into prisons, and exposed to all the rudeness of brutal jailers. It was made a crime to read fine psalms and prayers, bequeathed to the faithful by Ambrose and Chrysostom. At length the nation became weary of the reign of the saints. The fallen dynasty and the fallen hierarchy were restored— The Puritan was in his turn subjected to disabilities and penalties, and he immediately found out that it was barbarous to punish men for entertaining conscientious scruples about a garb, about a ceremony, about the functions of ecclesiastical officers. His piteous complaints, and his arguments in favour of toleration, had at length imposed on many well-meaning persons, Even zealous churchmen had begun to entertain a hope that the severe discipline which he had undergone had made him candid, moderate, charitable. Had this really been so, it would doubtless have been our duty to treat his scruples with extreme tenderness. But while we were considering what we could do to meet his wishes in England, he had obtained ascendancy in Scotland, and in an instant he was all himself again bigoted, insolent, and cruel. Manses have been sacked, churches shut up, prayer-books burned, sacred garments torn, congregations dispersed by violence, priests hustled, pelted, pilloried, driven forth with their wives and babes to beg or die of hunger that these outrages were to be imputed not to a few lawless marauders but to the great body of the presbyterians of scotland was evident from the fact that the government had not dared either to inflict punishment on the offenders or to grant relief to the sufferers was it not fit then that the church of england should take warning was it reasonable to ask her to mutilate her apostolical polity and her beautiful ritual, for the purpose of conciliating those who wanted nothing but power to rabble her as they had rabbled her sister. Already these men had obtained a boon which they ill deserved, and which they never would have granted. They worshipped God in perfect security. Their meeting-houses were as effectually protected as the choirs of our cathedrals. While no episcopal minister could, without putting his life in jeopardy, officiate in Ayrshire or Renfrewshire, a hundred Presbyterian ministers preached unmolested every Sunday in Middlesex. The legislature had, with a generosity perhaps imprudent, granted toleration to the most intolerant of men, and with toleration it behoved them to be content. Thus several causes conspired to inflame the parochial clergy against the scheme of comprehension. Their temper was such that, if the plan framed in the Jerusalem chamber had been directly submitted to them, it would have been rejected by a majority of twenty to one. But, in the convocation, their weight bore no proportion to their number. The convocation has, happily for our country, been so long utterly insignificant that, till a recent period, none but curious students cared to inquire how it was constituted, And even now, many persons, not generally ill-informed, imagine it to have been a council representing the Church of England. In truth, the convocation so often mentioned in our ecclesiastical history is merely the synod of the province of Canterbury, and never had a right to speak in the name of the whole clerical body the province of york had also its convocation but till the eighteenth century was far advanced the province of york was generally so poor so rude and so thinly peopled that in political importance it could hardly be considered as more than a tenth part of the kingdom the sense of the southern clergy was therefore popularly considered as the sense of the whole profession when the formal concurrence of the northern clergy was required it seems to have been given as a matter of course Indeed, the canons passed by the Convocation of Canterbury in 1604 were ratified by James I, and were ordered to be strictly observed in every part of the kingdom two years before the Convocation of York went through the form of approving them. Since these ecclesiastical councils became mere names, a great change has taken place in the relative position of the two archbishoprics. In all the elements of power, the region beyond Trent is now at least a third part of England. When in our own time the representative system was adjusted to the altered state of the country, almost all the small boroughs which it was necessary to disenfranchise were in the south. Two-thirds of the new members given to great provincial towns were given to the north. If, therefore, any English government should suffer the convocations as now constituted to meet for the dispatch of business, two independent synods will be legislating at the same time for one church. It is by no means impossible that one assembly might adopt canons which the other might reject, that one assembly might condemn as heretical propositions which the other might hold to be orthodox. In the seventeenth century no such danger was apprehended. So little, indeed, was the convocation of York then considered that the two Houses of Parliament had, in their address to William, spoken only of one convocation— which they called the Convocation of the Clergy of the Kingdom. The body, which they thus not very accurately designated, is divided into two houses. The upper house is composed of the bishops of the province of Canterbury. The lower house consisted, in 1689, of a 144 members. Twenty-two deans and fifty-four archdeacons sat there in virtue of their offices. Twenty-four divines sat as proctors for twenty-four chapters. Only forty-four proctors were elected by the eight thousand parish priests of the twenty-two dioceses. These forty-four proctors, however, were almost all of one mind. The elections had in former times been conducted in the most quiet and decorous manner, but on this occasion the canvassing was eager, the contests were sharp. Rochester, the leader of the party which in the House of Lords had opposed the Comprehension Bill, and his brother Clarendon, who had refused to take the oaths, had gone to Oxford, the headquarters of that party, for the purpose of animating and organising the opposition. The representatives of the parochial clergy must have been men whose chief distinction was their zeal, for in the whole list can be found not a single illustrious name, and very few names which are now known even to curious students. The official members of the lower house, among whom were many distinguished scholars and preachers, seem to have been not very unequally divided End of section eleven